2022, a viral disease called monkeypox, named after an earlier presumed source of the disease, as folks who had contact with wild mammals of various kinds, including, ostensibly at least, at times, monkeys, were the most likely to be afflicted by it. Monkeypox was detected in some unusual places, including the United Kingdom, which is where a case that popped up on the medical community's radar on May 6th, triggered a scan of medical records to see if any more cases might have been recorded, but not necessarily noticed for what they were because of how unusual this disease is beyond a few African regions. That more focused search found another four cases which, alarmingly, seemed to be the consequence of communal spread, meaning they stemmed from person-to-person -person contact rather than being the result of exposure to an infected wild animal, which is not something we've seen on any scale before. And that, in turn, led to even more focused tracking efforts that found another several dozen cases around Europe. As of the day I'm recording this, in mid-October of 2022, there have been 68,488 confirmed cases in 108 different countries, about 9,440 suspected but unconfirmed cases, and somewhere around a dozen deaths outside regions where the disease is endemic. So there have been something like 120 deaths in endemic regions and less than a tenth of that in regions outside those relatively poor and healthcare scarce areas. Part of why there's such a large outcome disparity, especially in terms of deaths caused by monkeypox, between these regions is that some areas are able to provide treatment and convince or coerce people into limiting contact with other people until their symptoms have passed. And the detection and labeling of those symptoms is a big part of this effort, as in some places folks who develop the namesake pox lesions and rashes and assorted other symptoms wouldn't necessarily connect their afflictions with this disease. And in some places, there's a large amount of stigma attached to monkeypox because of its association with homosexuality, which, to be clear, is not a fair association, as just like HIV, monkeypox is maybe more prevalent in the gay community than beyond it, but it's not limited to men who have sex with men. There is no disease that we know of that has that kind of prejudicial focus, including monkeypox. That relative commonality in the gay community, though, has resulted in stigma, even beyond the stigma people can feel as a result of the skin lesions this disease often causes, and that, in turn, can make people afflicted with it less likely to report their symptoms or tell potential sexual partners or other people that they might have physical contact with about it, or otherwise do the things that folks in other areas might be more likely to do, things that would prevent further spread. It's also suspected that the deployment of vaccines, which work for both smallpox and monkeypox, and which were already available in some areas and were relatively easy to produce in others because of that dual use, has helped quite a lot, and outreach to communities that have been heavily afflicted, especially the gay community in larger cities, also seems to have been successful, though appointments were very hard to come by in some places at the outset of this outbreak. That has improved a lot in the interim, but for several months, getting an appointment for a monkeypox vaccine was akin to winning the lottery in some of these especially at-risk areas. 
Today, a couple of months after vaccines began to be disseminated, and not quite half a year after this outbreak began, community spread seems to be slowing. And though there are downsides to the current vaccine option, it can leave itchy, painful red marks, which in some cases will be permanent, much like earlier smallpox vaccines would leave a little bump on some people's arms who received it. Some of these downsides seem likely to be at least partially ameliorated by a change-up in application methodology, using different needles, different doses, and so on. And those changes are in the process of being refined for eventual real-world use. And all of this, those slowing numbers and the potential for even better vaccine application methods, has left the medical community fairly optimistic about this outbreak, which went from surprising to alarming very quickly, and was at one point thought to be the beginning of another potential COVID-scale pandemic, especially because of all that stigma, which could allow it to settle into communities where no one would talk about or report cases, which in turn would provide the disease ample time and opportunity to mutate before spreading still further. Instead, it looks like surrounding hotspots with a sufficient number of vaccinated people does what it's supposed to do, at least most of the time. And once folks understand what to watch for and how to behave if they catch it, they tend to adjust their behaviors accordingly. Again, much of the time at least, enough to be statistically significant. So that's going pretty well. And by some indications, the parallel COVID pandemic is going decently well too. But what I'd like to talk about today are some variables that are still worrying folks who are in the know about these types of diseases and what we might expect as we head into another, traditionally at least, disease-amplifying winter here in the Northern Hemisphere. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Nature, and it's entitled, Will There Be a COVID Winter Wave? Back in December 2021, Twitter users started to jokingly report that one-star reviews for Yankee Candle products on Amazon had increased fairly dramatically in the weeks leading up to new COVID-19 infection surges. This is interesting and kind of funny because Yankee Candles here in the United States are notorious for being incredibly potent, let's say, in terms of their smell. That people were complaining on Amazon that the candles they received didn't have any smell then was grimly comical, but also telling because one of COVID's most notorious symptoms is what's called anosmia, the partial or total loss of the ability to smell. This Yankee Candle Index, then, while at least half-jokey, is also serious in a way because it points at a wave of smelling-related disability that represents both a significant and not funny symptom and a potentially unnoticed or underdetected via other means wave of a serious and possibly deadly infection. A man named Nicholas Bouchamp ended up writing a paper on the topic, which further illustrated the connection between no-smell Amazon reviews for Yankee Candles and regional upticks in COVID cases. This followed and was followed by other similar works by professors and data analysts showing that Yankee Candle reviews took an average one-star hit across their catalog in 2020, and that other products like perfumes were likewise suffering 
though Yankee Candles seemed to be the best indexable product to track for this type of data because of its well-known potency and because its products tend to be sold on a single Amazon page. Multiple products, all smelly, with their reviews jumbled together in a useful and scrapable way. I tell you all this because the Yankee Candle Index is once more signaling that we might be in for another wave in the United States. Gobs of one-star reviews are popping back up after a long period of olfactory normalcy for the company, and the folks who have been tracking this data are warning that it is probably a good time to get a vaccine booster and to start masking up again, which in some areas has been a somewhat tricky recommendation to make, mostly for political reasons, as some ideological leaders, and this is true globally, have made a lot of hay by framing pandemic-related precautions as a freedom-oriented issue. Don't tell me to wear a mask because I'm free to do what I want. Don't tell me to get a vaccine because I don't trust you and your elite doctors and scientists. And that's truly unfortunate news because things have seemed, for many of us at least, to be going pretty well, all things considered. Government agencies and private companies have largely dropped their mask mandates and even their vaccine requirements in some cases. Social distancing measures are being dropped, kids are going back to school, movie theaters are opening back up. Even U.S. President Biden said in a recent primetime interview that the pandemic is over. We've also hit record low hospitalization rates for COVID patients, which is partially due to all that immunity, vaccine-derived and latent from catching the disease at some earlier point, and partially due to more informed and better approaches to treating the worst-case symptoms that do still pop up, a small arsenal of treatments that allow us to bolster a person's chances, even if they get hit hard, and which can reduce the overall infection period, and the newer variants that have caused the last few infection surges have been just bogglingly skilled at spreading and dodging immunity, but also somewhat less dangerous relative to previous variants like Delta because of how they're built and because of where they tend to settle in the body. So in the U.S., for instance, the average number of COVID-related hospitalizations as of the day I'm recording this, is down to just under 12,000 people per week across the country, which is the lowest it's been since the summer of 2020. And for context, that is 12,000 compared to more than 145,000 in mid-January of 2022, back when Omicron was initially surging. Also, and this is very good news that isn't getting much press these days, we've got a new bivalent vaccine booster. And bivalent in this context means it targets components of both the original vanilla COVID and Omicron descendant variants of the disease. And it's about one and a half times as effective as the last booster. And based on the data we've got so far, does a solid job against the variants that are most likely to pop in the near future. Lots of relatively good news here then, all of which lends weight to the enthusiasm that we have seen from agencies and companies and Biden and everyone else. I don't know about you, but I am really getting sick of this whole pandemic thing. And it makes sense from a personal, but also a political, economic, ideological, and so many other perspectives to just say, okay, well, this is a thing that we deal with now. It's the flu, but way worse. But that's okay because we need to live our lives. This is what life is now. The bad news, though, is that this thing isn't done yet. And things are not great, even at this relatively good hospitalization low point. 
there were just over 40,000 new confirmed cases in the United States alone the day before I recorded this episode. And to be clear, confirmed cases means cases that officials or medical professionals were able to say for certain was COVID. Most of us at this point, in some parts of the world, including the United States, are using at-home tests and those don't tend to make it into these official numbers. So that is 40,000 confirmed cases per day, which is about one-third as many as we were seeing at the height of last summer's surge, but it's considered to be a massive undercount because we're not seeing all the people who get it and don't realize it, and all the people who just muscle their way through it, and all the people who use at-home tests with results that never end up in the official records because they don't report it to anyone or end up in the hospital. But at least we've got all that natural immunity from past infections, mostly Omicron infections. And at least we've got those snazzy new bivalent boosters, right? Well, the boosters are pretty solid. And folks in the know are recommending that everyone get one if they can and as soon as possible. I got mine the other day, and for what it's worth, the side effects were exactly the same as for my previous doses. A little achiness the next day. Definitely not pleasant, but not the end of the world. But the reason that they're recommending folks get these things right now is partially because we're looking down the barrel of a possible winter surge. So now is the time to get one, if you're able and if that seems at all disconcerting to you, because immunity, as we know now, based on recent data, tends to last about four months and then peters off quite a bit. So earlier boosters, if you got one more than four months ago, will not be working at anywhere near full capacity at this point. And the same is true of immunity gained from infections. So that's worrying, but also worrying is the fact that uptake numbers for this new booster, so far at least, are super low. In the United States, only about 40% of people who are eligible to do so have gotten a booster of any kind. And the ones who have gotten boosters have mostly gotten the original one, which was a lower dose of the original COVID vaccine. In comparison, only about 5% of eligible people, around 11 million Americans, have gotten this new bivalent booster thus far. Now, the original booster has been available way longer than the new one, so that's part of what's going on here with that number. And the FDA, just the other day, approved the new booster for kids ages 5 and up, rather than just ages 12 and up. So that will probably goose the uptake numbers a bit as well, as the number of people who are allowed to get this booster expands. But the overarching theme here seems to be that as less attention is paid to these things and fewer people in positions to get the word out are talking about how important it is to get them. And the medical community is pretty clear that it is in fact important to get one if you're able to do so. As that attention decreases and the narrative shifts back around to the idea that we're living in a non-pandemic world now, interest in getting a shot, one that has some mild side effects for many people, again myself included, tends to wane. Which makes a lot of sense, but it could be a tragic recalibration if this winter does indeed end up seeing a big surge of infections. And that would be especially tragic because these vaccines massively reduce the chance of those who have them coming down with a serious or even deadly version of COVID. And it's partly tragic because all those precautions that we previously had in place have been steadily dropping away. So we will not benefit from those, as we have up till this point. That has affected the numbers in the background continuously since the beginning of this pandemic. 
And in addition to that, again, many people have waning immunity from earlier infections and vaccine doses, which will reduce their overall immunity to infection during a new potential wave. And that new potential wave might itself be even more potent because of the properties of the new variants that look most likely to bring about this presumed surge. As mentioned in that nature piece, much of the non-vaccine immunity people have throughout the world right now is the result of a surge caused by the BA5 Omicron variant, which had even more immunity-dodging capabilities than the original, very good at dodging immunity, Omicron variant, but which fortunately did not have the same level of severe outcomes as earlier variants like Delta. So a lot of people caught COVID all at once and then moved on their immune systems gaining a small boost as a consequence. There are other variants out there now, though, and that's always been the case, to be clear, but we've gotten better at keeping tabs on the spread of these things. And where such data is available, we've been able to pay especially close attention to the variants and subvariants that have developed special powers that might prime them to become future Omicrons or Deltas or BA5s. And some of these new rifts on the core COVID model are worrying. And as BA2 and BA4 and BA5, all Omicron variants that have powered recent waves in different places around the world, have begun to subside, these new mutant COVIDs have had a greater opportunity to elbow their way into the mainstream. For instance, BQ1.1, a mutated descendant of BA5, is currently spreading rapidly, gaining dominance in parts of the UK and some European countries. BQ1.1 cases are doubling every week in these areas, and it's spreading twice as fast as the leading competitor, BA2.75.2, which is becoming a real force pretty rapidly in the United States. BQ1.1 is defined in part by its ability to completely evade antibody therapies, which are the treatments used to handle serious COVID cases, especially in people who are immunocompromised or part of other at-risk groups, like older people. These are the treatments that people are given if they end up in the hospital. The most common vaccines, fortunately, still work really well against BQ1.1, but again, folks are not getting updates to their vaccines as frequently as they did when these things were first released. So it may be that Although we have prophylactic types of defenses against this new subvariant, these vaccines and vaccine boosters, too many people will assume, perhaps understandably, that those worst-case scenario treatments will be available to them if things go really sideways. But because at least one of the most common and fastest-spreading variants is immune to some of those treatments, that won't be the case. The aforementioned BA2.75.2 is also being watched closely, as it is the fastest spreading variant in India. And another offshoot of BA2, called BA2.3.20, has shown up in Denmark and Australia recently, and is currently the fastest growing variant in Singapore. The main takeaway here, and I promise you don't need to memorize all these designations and numbers to understand what's going on. The main takeaway is that all the fastest growing variants spread faster, have new contagion powers, and almost all of them can completely or nearly completely bypass immune defenses gained from an Omicron or BA5 infection. So if you were infected by COVID previously and were planning to allow your body's immune system to handle whatever comes next, there's a decent chance that your immunity will not be applicable in the next wave. 
because of these mutations. So infection-derived immunity is not looking so great right now. And vaccine-derived immunity still works, not as well as it did against older versions, because everything post-Omicron is better at dodging pretty much everything. But the available vaccines, the mRNA ones, all give great protection against hospitalization and other horrible outcomes, and decent protection against infection and moderate outcomes. And this is another data point that is not being reported very much anymore, but more than 300 people are dying every single day in the U.S. alone from COVID. And that may also be an undercount because of imperfect reporting and misattribution. So we all have to make our own personal decisions about this. We all know our own circumstances and bodies and risk tolerance better than anybody else. But the risk-reward ratio for these boosters will be pretty clear for most people. And another quick data point here, masking and distancing goes a long way in high-risk situations in particular, based on the best and most recent data available. So if you're in a crowded situation, if you're in a badly ventilated area, if you're in an area with low ceilings and no windows and everybody's standing very close together, these types of seemingly small precautions actually go a pretty long way. And there's a steadily growing body of evidence that this is the case. So again, do with that information what you will. The other key bit of bad news here is that long COVID, a chronic condition that sometimes results from COVID infections, seems to be afflicting something like 24 million people in the United States alone, which is just a staggering number, especially considering that this condition doesn't have any treatments. We can't really explain what it is or why it's happening yet, and we don't know if it will ever go away in the people who suffer from it for more than a few months after their infection is gone. Long COVID can cause all sorts of breathing and cardiovascular and cognitive issues that can range from annoying to, in some cases, rendering previously perfectly healthy people unable to live their lives as normal anymore. And in some cases, unable to stand up for more than a few minutes before being too winded to function and needing to sleep to recover. And some of these people are in their 20s and 30s, very healthy people, without any known immunodeficiencies. So this long COVID thing is a serious issue for individuals, but it's also an issue for our economies, as having a huge chunk of the population, 24 million people, and that's just in one country, struck down with a condition that may or may not ever go away, which leaves them unable to care for themselves in some cases, and in many cases unable to work, that can have an impact on pretty much everything. That is a society-scale problem. Also worth noting here, and this is another issue that gets, unfortunately, little press right now, folks who are immunocompromised in some way are still having to hunker down, hardcore, just to operate in society at a moment in which there's a potentially deadly disease spreading around unhindered, and while preventative measures related to that disease are falling left and right. Less distancing, fewer masks, people not getting vaccines, and who are thus potentially becoming vectors for COVID spread, all of that means there are fewer and fewer places immunocompromised people can go and function safely in relatively normal ways. That is another facet of this problem, even if, for many of us comparably fortunate people, it feels in many ways as if the pandemic has disappeared at this point. There are still so many unknowns with this pandemic 
despite how much we've learned over the past nearly three years. And one of those unknowns is how best to balance keeping people mobilized to some degree so that we take advantage of some of the easy wins and relatively simple and unobtrusive precautions when it comes to this pandemic without completely draining everyone's battery to the point that we decide to just ignore all the threats this thing presents because we can't be bothered to do so anymore because it's wearing on us too much. And that wear and that exhaustion is understandable, but unbalances in either direction seem to be not great in terms of us maintaining a certain level of vigilance and being prepared for these seemingly, at this point anyway, inevitable infection surges and the many consequences they bring, both temporary and potentially permanent. The book I'd like to recommend today is actually pretty relevant to this week's topic. It's called How to Prevent the Next Pandemic by Bill Gates. This is an author you've probably heard of before, the founder of Microsoft. He is somebody who has a very mixed reputation, and if you're into some of the more colorful conspiracies surrounding the pandemic, he is trying to insert nanobots into your bloodstream through the vaccines in order to track you, a conspiracy theory that I think is especially funny because folks who believe it apparently don't realize they're already being tracked by all their smartphones. And smartphones are one of the fields that Microsoft failed to get involved with back in the day. But all that said, Bill Gates has focused most of his time in recent years on doing various types of philanthropy and making non-philanthropic investments in things like agriculture and clean energy and things related to biotechnology, including stuff related to pandemics. So he is somebody who is perhaps a questionable messenger for some of the people that he features in this book, some of the researchers who have been up to their eyebrows in this field for decades. But in terms of being a good collection of some of the most recent research on this subject, some of the most vital data points to know when it comes to pandemics in general, not just the COVID pandemic, it is a pretty good aggregation of that type of data. And I actually found it to be especially useful for pointing me towards other people doing research in this space so then I could do some Googling and search for them and their papers and their books, which then led me down some additional interesting rabbit holes related to pandemic research. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of How to Prevent the Next Pandemic by Bill Gates. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work at understandry.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.